Hey folks, this is Ian Foster, and this is If and When, a podcast where I talk to other creators about how and why they do their thing. To start, I'm talking to colleagues, friends, and veterans of the arts community at home here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. These are not so much traditional interviews as they're a chat over coffee or something a little stronger. So come sit in and have a listen. Hey there, if you're just tuning in for the first time, you should go back on your podcast app and check out part one of my conversation with Sandy Morris. This episode picks up right in the middle of our long chat about the Newfoundland music scene and his place in it from the 1960s right up to present day. Great chat with Sandy, great guy. Um, I hope you enjoyed part one and that you'll enjoy part two. Uh, I feel like since this is officially the second episode and I've gotten away from the explaining what it is thing in the in the first episode just to say a little about what's going on uh with with me these days so my partner nancy and i just got back recently from a trip to portugal uh which was the very first time that i've ever left the island for any kind of extended period of time uh without a guitar in my hand it was very strange after 15 years of doing this you know um, it's been it's been an interesting year. Lots of new things happening, like this podcast, I guess. Um, but also that we went for a whole month. We lived in a city called Porto, and it was uh, pretty magical. I mean, you know, the Europeans just have some stuff figured out. You know, um, not everything. You know, but but they do mostly have food, and wine, and and coffee, and you know, cool sights and warm weather and his okay so they have it all they kind of have it all figured out so now we're back home just trying to process all that i'm sure i'll say more about that in the future um and we have a few festival appearances around the island some announced some not announced for this summer and then some more stuff in the fall that i'll talk about because you know the fall it's a ways away yet we're, we're still trying to get out of winter here in in newfoundland um, it's going to happen just, just one day. I've already seen spring overseas. It, it, you know, birds were out, uh, things were alive. It was, it was kind of strange in March, but, uh, very refreshing. Uh, hopefully we'll get to do that kind of thing again. Anyway, here's my interview, the continuation of my interview with the excellent Sandy Morris. I've known Sandy for, probably most of the years that I've been performing live, which started around 2003, um, there was never a time that I met Sandy that he didn't treat me with the utmost friendliness and respect. And he's just that kind of guy, you know? Um, and, and that's probably why he's had such a long and illustrious career here on the island is that he exudes a certain vibe as well as his obvious playing ability. Um, and I'm sure you'll hear that in just the way he tells his stories in the rest of this interview. So enjoy. And I mean, you're still putting out records. I mean, you did a record. Uh, we did. were just talking about uh, Fretboard Journey uh, yep. this fall. You know, yeah, we did uh, I had a Christmas I did, record. I right? did two last year. I did Anita Best of Myself put out a CD, and then uh, Fretboard Journey, the Christmas album. Right. They sell off stage. Yeah. And we and they sell a few units. And you know, you got to have something to have to hand people all of them, nine times out of ten now when i say here, here here's a copy of my latest cd they go i think i might have a computer in the office that can play that yeah <laughs> right? yeah so you're up against that but you got to go right Eddie, with the little memory sticks that's i think that's, that's cool 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something I started doing um, out of that those same conversations, right? Yeah. I, someone came up to me at a merch table and said, I want to buy your CD uh, because I, I would like to support you, basically. Yeah. And I just thought that as nice as that was, like, as a fellow consumer... Yeah, I'm like I. Well, I would never buy something that was completely useless to me, yeah. and so I had to take a good, long, hard look at the idea that there's going to be some people, a lot of people now, who CDs are literally completely useless. Yeah, they don't exactly. have, yeah. they don't have the device to play them. You no. know, it's not even that they don't like them. I I love the artwork. I mean, I put, you know, probably you know Judd Haynes did the artwork for for Sleeper Years, my last yeah. release, and then the Christmas record, of course, Janet Davis did the artwork, amazing artist. Like, we still yeah. put a lot of work into the physical presentation, yeah. but we're at the same time trying to remember that it's just not how a lot of people buy music now. It certainly isn't. You know? Yeah. I so, still have a cassette deck. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're coming back. You yeah. can buy cassettes at the Battery Cafe. I have uh, some still-repped WGB Living in a Fog cassettes. Cassettes. I got a box of them. I bet you could sell those. I bet you I could. In fact, Fred's probably has some down there, but they're only interested in taking four or five at a time because it's not a huge, big thing. They're cassettes. You're going to hear comeback people going, the warmth of tape, man. I I found a a, a partial box of Living in a Fog on vinyl about a year ago, and I phoned Fred's and said, you interested in a few? uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, break them down. So I brought down 10 out of maybe 20 that I had. And they phoned up the next morning. So, got any more? Because the ten sold just like that, right? So, I brought the, the next ten down, and they're they're they are all gone now. <laughs> I'd had we over manufactured. We they were doing so well, and then tape cassette tapes started getting popular. So, we did a run of cassettes with the grand band, but then the CD sales or or LP sales just started slumping off. So, we I, I ended up with four thousand. Uh, copies of uh, Living in the Fog and carried them around for like 10 or 15 years. You know, that's a lot of records. Yeah. Uh, and eventually took them out to Robin Hood Bay with the kids and we broke them up and threw them on the dump. Amazing. <laughs> I wish I had them back now. I was about to say. Yeah. And luckily records never came back. Yeah, seriously. Have you thought about a repress? Yeah, we, we've, we're thinking about it and we're going to, you know, it's, it's uh, again, hard to justify the cost because uh, LPs are, are Super pricey. Expensive, yeah. And it's a different mastering system. I don't know if the masters for the uh, LP are still around. They, it was done at Sterling Sound, so they might be there. But right, and there's a, almost like a, you know, more modern systems play LPs differently now. And yeah, everything, exactly. You know? yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a whole other thing. Yeah, um, it's I am interested in your perspective a bit more on this, just because you went you went through you know so many different mediums of how people receive music. Like we're talking yeah. about, we're talking vinyl, we're talking cassette, CD now mp3s whatever yeah. you know um how how have you found have you given any thought to sort of how you know how i guess people kind of process that music now or even give feedback to you like you've put out two records this year yep. like you said they sell off the stage it's the same way i sell my records yep. now it's it's not you know you're not relying so much on like large distribution in retail stores no, do right. you find that you you've seen a difference in, in terms of, like, people's feedback on the records? Like, are you getting feedback, say, from different people now because people are finding it in a different way, either through online or only buying it off the stage? Or... Well, you get a lot of feedback online for, uh, um, 
that, that of course you never had online before. Yeah, <laughs> you never right. had, you know. So you only you're, you're, the only way you could judge how successful your product was was by how many units you sold. There, there was no way for people to say, "Great job, love that second track or whatever," right? Right. Unless you happen to run into them physically. Right. So you you definitely get uh, you get more of an insight these days, and, and you you get a lot more uh, avenues of, of of ways for people to make comments on your on what you're putting out. So. So yeah, no, it's it's. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm loving to be part of the internet age. It's, I'm glad yeah. I was around to see it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, it is a great age in some ways. I think uh, a struggle that I've had a conversation with with some people is that um, it's it's an age where it is so like, what is the metric for understanding the reach of the music? Maybe it is just shows now, but like, just the idea that you know, I've had friends who've gotten hundreds of thousands of streams on Spotify, but like two doors down, their neighbors don't know who they are and have never yeah, seen yeah, their band. Yeah, 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 and and I've kind of used it as a comparison where I've said, you know, imagine being in like 1990s Canada and being able to quantifiably say that any one of your songs has got 200,000 plays on radio. Yeah, like yeah. you were Blue Rodeo. You're a famous band that every, your household name, you know? Yeah. And so I, I think it's interesting to sort of, there's a bit of a struggle to sort of see Maybe maybe those two things are just so different they can't even be compared. But just trying to figure out how they relate in in the current age, like how a band sort of processes their reach and and how, what they're doing. You know? Yeah, yeah, very good point. And it's it's also different. Like I mean, people are not really album conscious anymore, which is a, a, a real sin as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you, part of the fun and back in the old days was ha- having an album and a cover and liner notes and pictures and. You'd yeah. listen to, and you'd have this visual feedback, and you'd have lyrics sometimes, and it was a an all over experience as opposed to it wasn't just listening. It was you know you you had something you could hold onto, you had something you could read and smell the fresh cardboard and vinyl. And all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. So it, it's become a much more one dimensional experience now uh, than it used to ever used to be, and I, and I, I also that that you know aside from like con. Uh, you know, albums that are, are meant to be tied together thematically, but just you know the pace of a record and and uh, and the order of tunes it was uh, there was something. I mean, like when a new beat album came out, you'd be fascinated for weeks. You just keep playing it over and over and over again, hearing new stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. You don't get that experience when you're just hearing singles. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I think that obviously you know. Time moves forward. I, I've always believed in that thing that, you know, if Bach or Beethoven were alive, they might be uh, electronic artists now, you know, yeah. that they would, all these guys, the Beatles the same way, that, that they would always be using the latest technology because that's what they did at the time. So yep. I've never really believed in that sort of, oh, we're stuck in the old days or, or they, they did it best. I've never fall, fallen for that. But it is interesting to think that, like, there almost might be a cycle happening here because it seems to me that the earliest like the earliest Beatles records were those singles. And then they it, were. it feels and historically like we progressed from the single to the album like you're talking about yeah. where there's actually an experience. And now it almost feels like we've returned to early Beatles, like the singles. Yeah, well, that's, that's very true. Like the, the album really evolved in the 60s. I mean, uh, previous to that, previous to the Beatles and that whole, well, whole revolution that happened in the 60s with the hippie movement and people turning on and tuning out and all that stuff. An album would often be a, a singer who, who had a hit on top forty radio, and then he would just do a bunch of cover tunes to fill up the rest of the album. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was not. It was no concept. It was no. 
uh, a real thought given to a, a, you know any thematic unit or anything. It was just a bunch of songs that people were familiar with. Because you look back at, at uh, you know famous singers from back in those days, and they covered everybody else's hits as much as their own. I mean, like you know you you could find the same ten songs listed on probably eighteen or twenty different artists' albums. They'd have to do whatever because it was popular, a popular song at the time. Mm-hmm. And the Beatles and and the Stones and all the stuff that happened in Dylan. And they're, they're, it changed that whole mindset around. Talk to me about Land and Sea. Yeah, Land and Sea, uh, I mean, uh, I think it was 1973, I got a call to go in and record some background music for Land and Sea. Back in those days, they would simply hire local musicians to come in and basically just jam, and they'd record everything that, you know. So uh, I went in with Ralph Walker. Ralph played piano accordion, and I played guitar. And I think that's where we came up with the closing theme from Land and Sea. Uh, We had Ralph, you know, armloads of music books, every Irish, Scottish, English folk song book or page of sheet music that he could find. And we played through it for hours. And I think it was a bottle of rum involved, too. <laughs> and then uh, at the end of the session, the producer came out uh, and said, uh, got any more? <laughs> what else can you do? And if I remember correctly, I just started playing that pattern, on, uh, a finger-style pattern on the guitar, and Ralph played the melody, and just, we just come up with it more or less on the spot. Right. Might have you know, screwed around with it for half an hour or so until we got it to where we liked it. But yeah, that that came out of that. But then I I, I was always a fan of the Land and Sea show. I, so I watched it all my whole life. And it, interestingly, when I was I was doing the post production for Codco for their TV series in Toronto, and the the guy I was working with up there, post production engineer, said, "So how do you keep your skills up when you're home?" And I said, "Well." He said, you know, like you, you, you obviously know what you're doing. He said, how do you, you know, do, do you do any other shows when you're when you're back home? I said, no. <laughs> this is it. So once a year I do Congo. Other than that, but and I was home one time and saw Pauline Thornhill had taken over as host. I said, geez, that'd be a, a fun gig. And the next thing I know, I get a phone call out of the blue from Pauline Thornhill saying, we'd like to get some more music. Right now what they had, their system was a box full of quarter-inch tape most of them not even labeled. They take one out and they put it up and they play it. If they liked it for the scene, they keep it. If not, they throw it back in the box and pick up another quarter inch tape and put it out. So I said, well, you know, yeah, great. I'd, I'd love to. Can you tell me what the subject matter of any of the shows is? And uh, she said, well, the, actually, the first season, I just did whatever came to my head. So, you know, some Irishy, Newfoundlandy kind of stuff. But she was really happy with it. And the second year she called back, she said, oh, yeah, we'd like to do it again. I said, well, you know, tell me what the shows are about, and I'll try to do something specific to the show. So they were doing a show on some guy who built a Viking ship, so I did some Viking music. And they did a show on a a, a meadow, a woman's favorite meadow somewhere. So I did a, an instrumental version of When I Mowed Bat Murphy Meadow. <laughs> Tell me about like how so for instance you said when they did a Viking show you did Viking music yeah I mean what's what are you drawing are you actually sitting down and researching and going like oh I seem to remember this band that had a feel for this and you listen to it again or is it just all sort of internal at this point and you're pulling that no I, I'd actually done a little bit of research into well not necessarily Viking music but uh, I listened to some Norwegian and Icelandic music and uh, traditional stuff. Sure. And so I kind of used that as a template for instrumentation and and uh, did some reading up on the Vikings. And in fact, I also did a score for a documentary. It was called Before Columbus. And uh, it was about how, uh, you know, there had been Europeans over here long before Christopher Columbus or... or, or uh, uh, 
what's his name, Cabot, John Cabot, they found artifacts from like 1,000, the year 1,000. Right. Uh, European clay pipes and stuff up north in Baffin Island. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was very interesting doc. It was a British guy that did it. But uh, I did, uh, you know, a couple of areas of that show, like the Vikings and uh, and uh, and Welsh music, for example. Right. Because you know, there was a whole scene, like there's a, a boat that they have in Wales that also shows up in some indigenous tribes in North America. There are also in, indig uh, some tribes in North America that still have blonde, blue-eyed members. They're full right. blood indigenous, but they intermarried with Vikings, basically, is what it comes Anyway, so I had done a little bit of research into it. So I, yeah, I, 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 I do like a, I, I consider uh, Portugal and Spain and and uh, uh, you know those countries to have an influence on Newfoundland music as much as the Irish and the English and the Scots, right? And the French, of course. So I've always, you know, just tried to. To be aware of, of what's going on with traditional music in Portugal and, and, and Spain and try to use that influence whenever I can find a place for it. Because mm -hmm. there's a lot more to the culture than just Irish, which is what gets pitched all the time. Like George Street is all about the Irish drinking songs. But there's a lot more to our culture than just that, right? Yeah. So I really find that interesting. And, and in fact, Basque, the Basque people, I'd, I'd like to get, I'd like to learn more about that, right? You know, because you know we've got a lot of that influence here. Yeah, yeah. I I've you know I'm really interested to see what happens in ten to twenty years when people sort of look back on. I don't know. I mean, what is the what is the proper amount of time that needs to pass before you can really look back on any kind of period? I suppose with some objectivity, but um, what people will think say of the early to like early 2000s and sort of what happened to Newfoundland music then because I think what you just said is really interesting that there's obviously a ton of influences here that go beyond the the typical Irish influence yep. and I feel like in, after you know and again this was just my generation so it's my bias but I feel like the the advent of the internet age and access to the world stage of music in a way that was never there before it just seemed like in the 10 years from when I started playing in 2003, say, to 2013, just the breadth of what was being performed here and the type of bands and the amalgam of all these really, really, like, genre, sub-genre, sub-sub-genre stuff yeah. with, with, like, still with Newfoundland, though, because inevitably the place exerts an influence. Yes. You know? And sort of sort of what what that does to whatever that identity is, you know? That was that's an interesting era because around two thousand, late nineties, early two thousands, that that I think you know there was a really big surge in independent kind of music in, in St. John's during that period of time. I mean, and there was a whole bar scene that went around it, and there was a whole recording scene that that grew around it and all that, um, which seems to be slacking off. That's that generation gets a little bit older, right? Right. There's not as many live. Venues or or live shows and and now you know CDs don't exist so getting your material out is, it was great to be able to have something physical you could hand people mm -hmm. <laughs> right you know what I mean mm -hmm. it's like, here's my calling card basically is what you're what you're handing around but yeah that was a big uh, a big boost but that I guess you know I'm I'm not uh, I'm not sure how generations work but it seemed like it was that generation of of kids had this really huge 
energy to create. When when did Raza begin? That was probably a few years before I started. Playing. It was right around 2000. Right. Okay. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly specifically. Uh, I don't know, and I don't remember when the album came out. I think we got the new uh, up-and-coming artist or whatever of the year from uh, Music and Ale in 2002. If I, it was either 2002 or 2003. Right. And so that's, that's the year that album would have come out. But we had been working like that. Aaron and I, what happened, it's a, kind of an interesting story. I was booked to play a wedding with Anita Best, Aaron's aunt. And Anita got invited somewhere and had to go out of town. So she said, would you mind if Aaron stood in and she'll sing the songs that I was going to sing, whatever they were. It was only three or four songs of wedding, so you got mm-hmm. three songs or something. And we did. Aaron and I sat in and did the wedding, and it didn't go great. It was in a, a, a great big noisy room, and nobody was paying attention. It was kind of like one of those situations where we were under PA system, and really there's no need for us to be there. Right. <laughs> you probably played lots of gigs like that. I've I know, played a few. I know I have. <laughs> anyway. I, want, I once opened for karaoke, so I feel uh, okay. like yeah. I'm aware of what yeah, you're talking yeah. about. Uh, anyway, so when the gig was over, I took the gear back to the studio, and I said, let's go and have a bite to eat. And she was disappointed, you know, because she wanted to do better. I said, why don't you uh, come to my studio sometime and record some stuff just to see, you know, I think you got a really nice voice. You get to hear it on tape, and what do you got to lose? She said, yeah, no, I'm more into visual art now. I think I'll take a pass on that. But, you know, months went by, and we, we, we you know, we kept hanging out together and, and going to see bands and stuff. Uh, she said, yeah. She said, I, I think I'm ready to go in and, and do something in your studio, but only if we can do something original, which, great. Delighted to hear that. Mm-hmm. And so we went up, we started jamming, and we jammed a few things, and she came up with a melody, and then she came up with some lyrics, and then months went by, and we kept getting together for these little sessions, and eventually we looked at it, and we had enough bits and pieces that if we could actually finish them all, we would have had a, enough material for a record. So we made that the, the, the thrust of it. it. took So it all took a couple of years to, to build up, and then finally we had the album that became the Raz album, Neo Prehistoric. She's Neo, and I'm Prehistoric. <laughs> <laughs> And so the band lasted, I know, a few years. Yep. Um, Aaron's a lawyer now. Is yes. that sort of what happened to the band that she decided that? Yeah. She to well, that? yes. Uh, in fact, uh, she wasn't a lawyer when we, and uh, she wasn't even in law school when we started the band. Right. And yeah. so we, we, you know, we had a couple of years of going at it, doing the ECMAs and all those things, and and uh, and promoting ourselves and playing bars and all that stuff. And then she went off to law school, so that kind of put an end to the band. Mm-hmm. Aaron and I still write and still play together. Uh, we do a Christmas show every year, um, stuff from our Christmas album. And we'll do a scattered gig just for fun, and uh, we still have a bank account with money in it. Right. So, so we still have, uh, you know, we, we've got projects that we will eventually get to. Cool. She's a in music a, industry success, a bank account with money in it. You still, know what I mean? Yeah. So, and that's, if if 2000 was when we started, that's nearly 20 years of, of being together. And we, we did a... a RPM challenge a few years ago and loved it. Come cool, up with brand new material and and uh, you know crazy trying to get it all done in the month of February, but we did. We we got enough there. Mm-hmm. So we'll. I think that uh, the Raza story is not over yet. Cool. I think there's more stuff to come. Right. Yeah. And of course, Jamie Dart is another kind of not yep. not similar, but it's you know it, it's a collaboration between you and another female singer. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. How, how was that? You know. Oh, it's great. Jamie's uh, like you know got a, a voice like that's kind of like. Janis Joplin and, and uh, uh, Steve Peary. <laughs> it's uh, and what what I love doing with Jamie is some of the old R and B material. Like uh, I actually had the fortune to play with Big Mama Thornton here in St. John's for a week. Mm-hmm. So I, I love going back and getting a Big Mama tune or two and getting having Jamie interpret that. Cool. And, uh, 
And some of the stuff like er, the uh, Tina Turner from uh, Ike and Tina Turner Review Days, some of those tunes. Mm-hmm. Jamie sings that stuff great. Mm-hmm. And that, that's really interesting. Jamie's, again, like her, her career now is uh, in the service industry and she's loving it. She's making a whole lot of money. So I don't know. We, we'll continue to play together for as long as I can hold a guitar. Sure. But I don't know if we're going, if that will develop into anything bigger. Uh, where I where I would like to go with it is to actually put together a kind of an R&B blues show featuring Jamie. Cool. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I'd, I'd love to do, since we lost Rocky Wiseman last summer, Rocky did a show for uh, uh, Voice of Bombay called Rocky's Roots, mm-hmm. in which he would play obscure blues, jazz, R&B, whatever. Like, he would play the original version of a song that Elvis might have had a hit with. Right. But this would be the old black guy who did it in the 40s somewhere, right? Right. Uh, I love the show and I, and I love the material that he was he was presenting and I, I think I'd like to do a Rocky's Roots live right uh, again featuring Jamie doing, and, and it would probably be more than just Jamie but it would be a great idea for a show cool. something that we should do up Woody Point really right or sometime yeah totally yeah and I, of course I work with Jenny Gear too yes and yes. Uh, Jenny and I are, are you know we're, we really enjoy working with each other I had to learn a lot to play with Jenny oh really how so? Well, she backphrases, a lot of the best singers do, mm-hmm. and she would she'd keep saying to me like, "No, it needs to be slower. It needs to be slower." And I said, "Just I can't play any slower." And what she was, what she meant was rubato. Right. Yeah. So I've really gotten good at that now. <laughs> right. <laughs> because you can't. You have to let her go. She's driving the bus. Yeah. And you have to. So you've got to listen for a breath or watch to see a shoulder movement. or Like you've got to really, you've actually got to, you don't have a physical connection, but you've got to, got to have this, you've got to intuit what she's doing. So right. it's a very interesting, uh, uh, you know, to work with her from that point of view because she goes her own way. She's never had any training or anything either. And that must be, that must have been interesting from uh, the studio perspective because, I, I, you know, I mean, Again, if anybody is listening to this who who doesn't know, you know, a lot of studio tracks are made with a click track. Yeah, yeah. You know, and presumably that was a challenge, I would imagine, based on the whole Roboto thing being like this ebb and flow. Yeah, and, that, you know, and she'd also, and she'll, she might be very Roboto, like really loose, and then go into tempo for a verse or a chorus, and then come back out again. So you really got to be paying attention. Right. You're, you're not you're not drifting off. No click <laughs> tracks. You're, and no you're, click tracks, yeah. which, and no. We uh, did the whole, both the Fripboard Journey albums, uh, clicks do and no oh, cool. no overdubs just live off the floor and uh, if there's anything that anybody doesn't like well let's just do it again right as opposed to you know, I, I suppose we would have the luxury of going and punching into a track even though there's no clicks or anything but you you could you know fix a mistake if you had to right but, but we don't we just let's just record it again yeah <laughs> you know and I presume that story is uh, kind of as, as simple and as wonderful as like you guys all know each other you're all guitar players uh, why not get together and and, and try it. Well, you, you know, know? Re- really, that group got together because there was a market there looking for that. There, uh, and again, going back to uh, the Garrick in those places, the guy uh, who, who runs the Garrick Theatre, Dave, uh, had been saying to me, you know, it'd be great if we could get a guitar summit of some kind, like a bunch of guitar players all playing, like, you know, and the guy at Raiders Festival, Steve Brunt, said the same thing. He said, like, boy, you know, and in fact, we did one year myself and Dwayne and Louis McDonald. And Shane Murphy, who comes down from Montreal to play the Raiders Festival of Year, we mm-hmm. did a kind of a guitar thing, but it was completely spontaneous. We just got up on stage and played whatever we could think of to play together. Right. Uh, but th- that was two of venues that I play regularly asking for a guitar group. 
Right. And a guy from Cornerbrook said to me, if you could get Craig Young and Dwayne Andrews and, and Gordon Quinton and yourself, he said, I'd get you 500 bucks each to come out here and play. <laughs> so I called the boys and said, you know, we got these offers. What do you think? And everybody said, sure. But then finding a way to get our schedules to bash. Right. Then we got a call from Rogers Television, and they were doing a new series on songwriters, but they wanted to do a guitar show. And I said, well, you know, here's a suggestion. <laughs> There's these four guys, and we're, and uh, you know, why don't you get the four of us in there? Right. And everybody was good, but Craig was only getting back from Nashville that day. Hmm. So there was no time to get together, prepare again. It was just like show up, sit in front of the camera, and come up with stuff. Right. And they roll tape, and we started going and talking to one another and playing through tunes. And I looked at my watch, it was 45 minutes, like it's only a half hour show. We're going way over. So I said, boys, you know, I, I think we must have it because, you know, we, we're way past a half an hour here now. And uh, Aaron Sully was producing and said, just keep going. She said, we got two shows here. <laughs> That's great. We did the same thing uh, a couple of years after that they were doing a Christmas special and said, can you come back and do some Christmas tunes? And sure. again, we hadn't ever learned a Christmas tune together. We just, we showed up in the studio and we started playing whatever came into our minds. Yeah. And when we finished, we said, you know, we should do a Christmas record. <laughs> and so we did. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a beautiful thing of, because uh, I mean, you know, we could talk uh, for another several hours about the challenges of the music industry and yeah. the sort of, all the stuff that doesn't work out. It sounds like those stories are just those blessed stories of like the door kind of opened you walked through it yeah yeah exactly it, it just fell into our laps literally and, and uh, you know it's the same thing with, I was like I was speaking earlier about about Brian and myself with the with the tribute shows all of a sudden we had a circuit right <laughs> that was looking for looking for shows to put on and, right okay we can do that right uh yeah so that you know those things do happen yeah I mean like the whole way television fell into my lap it just i happened to be there i happened to be available and i happened to, to know a whole bunch of uh, how to play folk music and how to play a little bit of rock and roll and some jazz and just like so whatever they needed a guitar player for right <laughs> i was able to fit the bill yeah yeah i had to work really hard to to get there of course you know, you know yeah can you speak for a second about um music industry conferences and i asked yeah. that question because you and i have talked about it at yeah. length over over the years yeah. uh but also because i think you have an interesting perspective because i could speak about it from the perspective of my experience there as a solo independent original music artist yeah. and i could speak about it a little bit as an artist who's produced other artists who've gone because we've had those kind of uh, you know, closed door discussions about their experiences there. But right. you've definitely had a lot of experiences, I'm sure. You know, like you said, Raza did it for a bunch of yep, years. Sure you know, and a bunch of, you know, I know Fretboard Journey, we met up at Contact East this year. Yes, you guys yep. were there. So, like, you've been at a bunch of these with a bunch of different bands, and I'm sure you've had, uh, you know, results may vary, you know. Yep. Well, tell me about it. Well, I'm not a fan. I, I, I do think that. And now I'm not saying that they're useless. There's there's a, a certain point in in your career where it can be a really important thing to attend an ECMAs or Junos or, or wherever Canadian Music Week, all that stuff. My experience with Canadian Music Week was we played in a bar uh, where there were no representation from music labels because they were all out watching people that were hot on their list 
and of course. bars all over the city because it's such a huge event. It's like, you know, there's 50 gigs going on any one hour. Absolutely. I played North by Northeast once yeah. in Toronto, and I played, my slot was at a bar that I had already played once before that I'd booked myself. Yeah. And I think there were more people at that show. Yes, right. Than at the multi-artist yeah. bill of that bar. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, they, you, you, you got to pay to go there. You got to pay to get there. You got to pay to stay there. And they don't really pay you for anything. They've a lot of these, you know. Obviously, ECMAs is worth millions of dollars. If you have it in a city of Charlottetown this year, there's hotels and the restaurants and the bars that'll be booming with people. But as to whether or not it's worth my while to go there as an artist, I would have to have something lined up in advance with a label or a manager or, you know, to no point just going there blind and mm-hmm. hoping for the best. Mm-hmm. For one thing, nobody's out there looking. Mm-hmm. People have, you know, if, if they've heard the Irish descendants are hot and then they arrange to come, come see you at, at the ECMAs, that's that's a good thing. But if you're just going there blind hoping for the best, hoping to be discovered, it's probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Probably not. I, I wish they would uh, have more respect to pay the musicians for the showcases and things as opposed to charging the musicians for the showcases, right? I agree. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, I mean, because like, somebody's making money off that shit. I mean, aside from the, the, the spinoffs of the, with the local commerce and you know hotels and restaurants and all that stuff, the, the event makes money. Absolutely. Right? And it gets funded partially or, or, or whatever. So the, the fact that they, they, that they're, it's like these days, the, 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 your career path is, it could very well be just going on a, a, a show on TV, you know, like The Voice or whatever. Like it's, it's, it's not, uh, and then, and then you're, you're at the, if you win or whatever, if you're successful at that, you end up on the top of the heap. But you haven't done any of the work to get to the top of the heap, if you know what I mean. You haven't, you haven't struggled, and you haven't paid your dues, and you, you know, it's. Uh, and those I, shows I, often come with contracts that would ruin you anyway. Like you would have no chance to. No, I, I don't know when when Jenny was doing uh, uh, Canadian Idol, and she and Duane were were doing a lot of work live together. She was not allowed to do an arts and culture center tour that I offered her. I offered it to them. You know, you guys come out and open for Raza, I think it was. We were doing all the arts and culture centers, and they weren't allowed to do it. They were contractually not allowed to go out and play in public until they did something that the manager, you know, approved of. Of course, yeah. So uh, it's crazy. And uh, I don't like the spirit of those shows. It's kind of mean-spirited. It's like watching people fail is part of the amusement. It is, yeah. Right? Yeah, totally. Those are things about the modern industry that I don't like very much, and... uh, What's amazing, though, is that people still keep coming through, mm-hmm. you know, and good stuff. I mean, there's good stuff out there. What do you think accounts for those successes now? Like, what do you think? Because uh, we talked a little bit about how things worked back in the day. You know, people were uh, people. There was a different kind of culture of going out so you could sustain yourself as an independent musician working in the club scene. Uh, That thing has changed a little. We've talked about how merchandise has changed. So there's a different income level there, as in there's a lot less now on at least things like physical CD sales. And we know that streaming services certainly pay out a lot less than a CD, you know, even a very strict distribution deal would probably pay out. Um, So what is it? What works? What works is is just to keep at it, I think, and just keep keep doing it. Right. <laughs> just another round of men go over the top and <laughs> get mowed down. Good, excellent, compared yeah. to a war. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I, I just think, and also, you know, I, mean, I, 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 I come from, from a, a weird, like, I'm not an artist, you know, I'm not a solo artist, I'm not, and I don't, I'm not, I promote original material of my own, if, if, if it is, it's with somebody else, you know, I mean, like mm-hmm. with Aaron or whoever. So, uh, my viewpoint of the industry is always from kind of being the sideman and, you know, I'm just around if anybody needs a guitar player. In a way, I, I can't believe that I've had a career of over 50 years just being a guitar player and and not promoting my own songs, my own instrumentals. You know, I haven't got a solo album out right. for Land and Sea. Which when, is, when's that coming out? Good question, isn't it? You never know. I keep thinking there's going to come a point in my life where I'm kind of semi-retired and I can go back and look at all the old photos and scrapbooks and, uh, you know, reminisce. Listen to some of the early recordings. One thing, but it just never seems to happen. And I, I, I kind of don't want to actually make it happen as long as there's new stuff to do. You know what I mean? I totally. Keep just keep going. I mean, yeah. God love poor Ray Walsh. You know, he's only five years older than I am. So I mean, I, I'm going to keep doing everything I possibly can to keep, uh, you know, to keep going until until I can't anymore. Yeah. Because you know, I might only get another two or three years out of it. You never know. Honestly, I over the years, you know, I've had someone say. Something like, you know, I love your, I think your latest record is is the best one. And then they would go, listen, I mean, no offense to the older record. Because right. they realized the potential of just being like, <laughs> you could interpret it as, oh, thanks, finally I made a good one, you know. Uh, and, and maybe that's true. But but I I also usually say to them, I'm like, man, I, I'm totally fine with it. Because imagine someone coming up and saying the opposite to you, which is, hey, I know you just put out a new record. Listen, 2009 was great. And you sort of <laughs> right. go, like, imagine everything since then was downhill. Right. Like, I think that, uh, you know, the best thing to believe would be the best is yet to come no matter what. Right? Oh, like, uh, people ask me all the time, what was your favorite gig? And I say, I don't know if it's happened yet. That's awesome. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's lots of possibilities for fabulous gigs coming up, as far as I'm concerned. So, Well, thanks, Sandy. Oh, hey, man. It's fun. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I always enjoy talking about my career. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a good one. How much, uh, you know, I'll ask one last question. How much do you think swimming in freezing cold Newfoundland lakes has had to do with how you continue to play as much as you ever did? (laughs) I don't don't know if it's directly involved, but I mean, I've been swimming in cold Newfoundland lakes since I was a kid. When the Grand Band was on tour, Tommy and Greg and myself were vegan, and the rest of the band was distinctly not. So we'd usually, uh, because it was, you know, early 80s, there were no vegetarian restaurants uh, outside of St. John's or really even in St. John's. So we'd buy a, uh, a pass to the provincial parks. It was like 20 bucks or something for the season. Mm-hmm. And wherever we were going, we'd stop into a provincial park, we'd boil up a big pot of food and go for a swim in the pond or a river or whatever was there. Right. And that's and then that was our meal, main meal for the day, and we, you know. Uh, and that's I've been doing it sort of since then. In fact, even in the '60s, when we whenever we play Cornerbrook, we always find places to go for a swim. Just, to, wow. but I don't know if it's affected my career or any. But it's, it's I think it's had a positive effect on my lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, thanks, man. Yeah, okay. And that's my conversation with Sandy Morris. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, my guest will be Des Walsh, poet, writer, actor. I had the privilege of working with Des on my second short film, Keystone. We talk about that and a whole lot more, and we do it all over a glass of Stock 84 Czech Republic brandy. You don't want to miss this one. We'll see you next time.